So, First Peter, um, he starts out by saying in 1 and 2, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. That is a lot to say, and uh, uh, here, here's my name, here's your name, and uh, greeting. Uh, as often in the Bible, the introductions tell you a lot about the letter itself. So Peter starts with Peter, which really wasn't his name, right? Mm-hmm. It's not with Simon. How, why do they call himself Peter? The name Jesus nicknamed him. Yeah, exactly. Jesus gave him that nickname. We give nicknames for a lot of reasons. But do we ever give nicknames kind of based upon things we see in the person? Yeah. Like... Shorty. Shorty. (laughs) Red, yeah. We give a lot of them like that. And I think this was given by Jesus for what he saw he was going to make Peter into. Because the word Peter means a rock. rock. Well, um, how was Peter when Jesus first met him? Very unstable. Yeah, more like shifting sand than a rock. But God, Jesus, was going to make him into a rock. I suspect Peter really treasured this name as a challenge to live up to and as a sign of what Jesus had done for him. He turned him into a rock, which is pretty cool. He identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. If he's an apostle of Christ, what does that say about everything he writes? Based on his knowledge of of having seen and witnessed what Jesus did for those three year, that three ish year period, and the apostles were basically what inspired inspired representatives of Jesus on the earth. So he's when he speaks, he speaks in the name of Jesus. He's got a special word uh, from the Lord of the church himself. And then he identifies the readers, and it's hardly a customary hello here. You know, he says, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout these places who are chosen. That's a lot. Um, And he's going to expand on a lot of these points uh, over a period of time. Um, There's a lot of ways to take this. Uh, But I think he's saying that these are people who are chosen who are also aliens, who are of the dispersion. So think about it that way. Think about them being chosen. Um, who chose them? Jesus. Yes. And what were they chosen for? Obedience. For obedience, for God. You know, they were God's special people. So these, they are God's we could call them God's chosen people. Usually when we think of God's chosen people in the Bible, we think of who? Israel. Israel. And what we're going to see is these people that Peter's writing to are the now Israel, the new Israel. 
uh, because they are the chosen ones. So they, they owe everything to the Lord's choice of them. They are aliens. Well, wow. What is that? We, we, what, what would we call an alien? I mean, we could call maybe somebody from outer space an alien. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Alien, we would use the term what? Foreigner. Foreigner, yeah. That's a little clearer for us. Alien just conserves up all those other ideas. So he's saying they're foreigners. Uh, wonder how that is. Foreigners, they were, they were like in another country. They weren't living in their home. They weren't. Where were they living? I think the next part of this kind of identifies in that what he's talking about, the aliens. In other words, you were ran out of your place or scattered. Well, one place to another. there's a lot of debate about how to look at the aliens here. But look at chapter 2, verse uh, 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. I think he's calling them foreigners because they were citizens of heaven and they didn't belong here on the earth. That's what I think. Um, he says that again in a different way in chapter 4 uh, where he says, uh, you know, the time already passed in verse 3 sufficient to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles. And he talks about some things they did. In all this, in verse 4, they're surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation they malign you. It's like they belong to a different country and they don't fit in very well. You know, we struggle with aliens, you know. So that's kind of the idea. Yeah, Tori. Mine says sojourners and pilgrims, so it gets you that idea of them like moving through, like this isn't where they're... Yes. Which is a good, I'm glad you brought that up, because the translations are different, and that does give you that idea more. And I think that is what he's saying, and I really think that he's writing this largely to teach them how to live as God's people in a foreign country, the world, the earth. And that that has its challenges, uh, <coughs> because, well, the temptation is to kind of assimilate, um, you know, from a from a country political standpoint. You know, I don't know how much you follow whatever's going on. She got this controversy about the DACA people, which are the dreamers, and whatever they call those. And they're ones that Obama set up a program where they could register. They were people who were brought over as illegal aliens, but they were children. And they've lived here all the rest of the time. And so Obama legitimized them with a program that is, makes them official, you know, residents here. Uh, and Trump's trying to end that and send them back. And you, so there, there's a lot of arguments being made about all that. But one of the things is, well, if they've lived here since they were children, some of them have lived here for years. Where do they go back to? Because you think about what would happen. What if you were brought here when you were five and now you're 30? Where would you see your home? Probably here. Yeah, probably here. You know, you brought somewhere when you're five and you stay there for 25 years. Your home is where you stayed for 25 years. Well, that's the problem with us. We've stayed in this world for a long time even though we belong to another country. And the challenge is 
to maintain that connection with the other country and to continue really being citizens of heaven and not fitting in too closely with the world. And so I think that's largely what Peter is going to talk about. He's going to look at that in a lot of different ways. Um, but I think the bottom line is saying we shouldn't belong to the world. And when we don't, that's got its consequences. He's going to talk a lot about, you know, the fact that people are upset they don't fit in, they're going to persecute them, speak badly about them, things like that, because they don't relate to them. They seem like aliens, you know, foreigners. Uh, well, yeah, that's what we're supposed to seem like. And we're probably not going to fit in, and a lot of people who are worldlings probably aren't going to like us. So I think that's kind of related to the theme. Now, he calls them... Uh, of scattered throughout, or uh, some of the translations will say of the dispersion. So the dispersion, or the scattering, originally referred to like Jews that were spread all over the Roman Empire. They were away from their homeland. The homeland was considered to be what? Israel. Israel, Canaan, Palestine. So if they were in Alexandria, or Antioch, or Rome, or wherever, they were considered to be part of the dispersion. Uh, the ones that were scattered all over the place. Well, I think he's talking about us as Christians being a part of the dispersion. That is, we're scattered and away from our homeland, which is heaven. You know, we are... So this is an epistle from someone who's homeless to a bunch of homeless people. They homeless in the sense they don't fit in, they don't belong. Uh, they may have houses, but they're not in the country. And and you know, this is a helpful. You know, it's helped me to think about this book that I lived in Brazil for three years. Because wow, I I remember writing to someone who was in Eastern Europe while I was living there and saying I just always feel like a fish out of water. I never feel like I fit in. I never feel like I belong. I always feel out of place. And I only stayed there three years. I've traveled, I think this trip will make 42 times since I came back to Brazil. I actually feel a lot more comfortable now there now than I did when I lived there, because I probably stayed there longer on the trips than I did when I lived there those three years. I don't know, maybe not. It's been a lot. Uh, but but your, your, your initial reactions, I mean, you just don't feel comfortable. You don't feel very secure. And you don't feel a natural connection. And so that's really the mindset that we need to have. Um, and so we're God's special people, but away from the homeland, heaven, scattered all over these regions and these various places he mentions in verse 1, included about 300,000 square miles. That was a pretty big region. I think this was the biggest region written to in any of the epistles that are written to any particular place. This is there's several million people that live in these uh, territories. So that's my thought about verse 1. Do you have comments or questions about that? So how is this supposed to get around to all of them? Don't know. I'm assuming probably somebody took the letter to some of these places and went to some churches in these places. Maybe there were multiple copies even. So, with the view of, that you're mentioning for verse 1, would you say that it's written to Jews or Gentiles or Christians in general? Yeah, I don't have a strong feeling about that. Um, I think either will work, and maybe it went to just Christians no matter what their ethnicity was. 
That, that's a debated issue. So is the, could the scattering be related to uh, Acts 8? I mean, it could. Some people think, well, they're scattered in the way from, from where they grew up in the world. But I prefer seeing them scattered in a way from their homeland in heaven. Mm-hmm. I just really see this as a theme in the book. It's going to depend on how you, if you agree with my reading of the book as well as through. But I see almost everything in the book is tied to this idea of we don't fit in here, we don't belong here. And, and that the things he will then say are really a reflection of that concept of who we are. So this, you know, I'm just starting to build that to some extent, so it may be hard to evaluate that at this point. I could be wrong. Not everybody agrees with me on that. But I just see the message as so strongly fitting in with that idea. Because I didn't know if, like, the aliens would refer to citizens from heaven and the scattered could be... I would prefer to see them as both kind of contributing to the same idea. Yeah. Yeah, I think normally people would see it, either they're both talking about... Are my view, or they're both talking about some? They're just away from their homeland. And this it doesn't the exactly make sense if it's two different things. Right, I think it would well, fit better if it goes together. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, to me, why would he be writing to Christians who were away from their particular areas where they lived specifically? What do they need any different than the Christians or natives in those places? Maybe not that much. Um, but I think the more significant thing is we're all aliens, or should be. So he identifies them in verse 2 in terms of their connection with God. And this is really <coughs> weighty. It's amazing what he puts in these first two verses. You know, you could spend a long time talking about these. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. So he's identifying them with three different uh, prepositions. So they're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, that's kind of like the basis of this, or the origin of this. So if it was according to God's foreknowledge, then it wasn't like an afterthought or an accident God already knew that there would be people who would respond to the gospel, and he chose to uh, bless these people. He chose the ones um, who would be in Christ. In other words, if they, he knew there'd be some to turn to Christ, and he had a plan for those people. And by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, uh, they were, what, the sanctifying work. To sanctify something means what? Set apart from the world. I think that fits right with the theme. The <coughs> set them apart. They're separate. They're distinct. They've got a special purpose. Um, and in fact, what do we usually call the Spirit? The Holy Spirit. Holy means separated. So the Holy Spirit is sanctifying, separating us to God's special purpose. Um, uh, to, uh, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. That's the goal. You know, to obey Jesus, to obey God, and to be sprinkled with Jesus' blood, be cleansed by his sacrifice, and thus serve the Lord. So, 
That's what he says about these people. I mean, that's a lot to say, and that tells you a lot about them, just in those first two verses. He said, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So he wants them to have more and more grace and peace. You can't ever get too much of those. Thoughts and comments on those two verses. It's a lot for two verses. But. Do you think that sprinkling of blood refers back to Moses consecrating with the blood? And maybe other times also where blood was sprinkled in connection with the sacrificial system. I think the idea is the sprinkled blood cleanses and purifies and things like that. And it did on several occasions, yeah. All right. About three to five. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So, he is praising God, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, that says a lot. All this was based on his mercy. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. He's caused us to be born again. That is a really radical concept, right? If you're born again, what would happen to you? Yeah, you'd have to die first, and... You would start all over again, right? Yeah, that'd be a really weird thing, you know, if you thought about it in a physical sense. But you'd, you'd, you'd start all over. That's what he's saying. He's caused them to be born again in their relationship with God, this radical change, to uh, a living hope. Well, there, there's a lot of stuff that's living in First Peter. We're living stones. It's a living word. It's a living God. We have a living hope. Um, think about uh, hopes that are not religious hopes. You have some hopes that are not connected specifically with God, right? So what are some of the things you hope for that are not religious or spiritual? Retirement. Retirement. Health. Ice cream. Ice cream. Yeah. What kind? Vanilla. With chocolate? Yeah. Strawberry? Just plain. Chick-fil-A vanilla ice cream. Let's get into the hot fudge. What are those hopes? Are they living hopes? They are really dying hopes. They aren't going to last. Your retirement's not going to last. Your health is not going to last. And that ice cream is not going to last long at all around here. <laughs> Forget some hot fudge, especially. Um, so, I mean, we've been born again to a living hope. It, it keeps living. Uh, you know, and I think this whole idea fits in living quarters. Our, our goal is not to be here. Our goal is to be with the Lord in heaven. And really, one of the primary marks of our life in Christ is hope. We are looking forward to being with, with Jesus. That, that, that motivates us, that, that really spurs us on. Um, and he describes that uh, hope. Well, he says it comes through the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, you know, 
we couldn't have that hope if he hadn't been raised. But he, he says it's it's an inheritance. So he calls it a hope in verse 3, an inheritance in verse 4. What will he call it in verse 5? A salvation. salvation. So it's a hope, an inheritance, salvation. When he talks about it being an inheritance, do you notice the three things he says first about it in verse 4? They are all saying what it's no. not. Because you can't really say what it is. That defies language. It's easier to just say what it's not. So it's not, it'll never, it'll not perish. It's, it'll not spoil. It's not defiled. And it will not fade. It's reserved in heaven for you. That's pretty incredible. You know anything here that doesn't ever perish? I don't. Or that doesn't have some defilement? I mean, even that ice cream. It's, there's going to be something about it that's not the best ice cream you ever had. You know, that retirement, it's not going to be as good as we hoped it would be. You know, and uh, the health, there's going to be some wrinkles in that. You know, I developed this strange knee pain today all of a sudden. <laughs> don't know where that came from. Didn't even run yesterday. But it happens. I hope it uh, goes away. But, uh, not the knee, of course. The pain. <laughs> uh, but, but, you mean, you know, we're just not used to things that never perish, that have no defilement, and they never fade. You know, because... The, you know, they all fade. I mean, in time, they all don't mean as much. They all kind of get old and boring and kind of stale. But this, the inheritance we've got, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, reserved in heaven for you. So it's secure. It's in safe custody. Nobody can touch it. And it's reserved for you. You know, we're the recipients of this inheritance. He says, who are protected by the power of God through faith. Now, God's protecting the inheritance. It's reserved in verse 4. He's protecting us in verse 5, so we get there. Uh, you know, so it's going to be there, and we're going to be there. Um, and the inheritance is, is, is reserved, and we're protected by faith. So, is, is the only factor... And whether or not we are eternally saved, what God does, is that the only factor? No. If he's, when he says by faith, he's indicating there's a role for us too. And we're protected by God. But he doesn't protect people who quit believing or don't believe. You have, to, you have to really trust the Lord to be protected by him. So there's a role for us. The role for the Lord is way bigger, but our role is vital. And we're protected uh, by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be received, revealed at the last time. We really won't know all about that salvation until Jesus comes back, until until we're actually saved. I mean, what's what's that body going to be like that's going to be raised out of the grave? You know? And what's it going to feel like being in heaven? What are we going to do all the time? And You know, what, what are we going to think about being there in the presence of Jesus? And, you know, and so forth. I... Wow, there's a lot to be revealed. We all look forward to it. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be better than we can imagine. You know, and we'll see that in just a moment, actually. So, these strangers, these these foreigners, have been born again to this hope. 
reserved in heaven where they're headed back to their home life. Thoughts and comments. Six to nine. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not see him now, you but believe in him, you greatly rejoice and will joy inexpress with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So, we greatly rejoice. He is assuming that. But how could we not? Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Can Christians feel distressed? Stressed? Depressed? Etc. Yeah, all the above. We're not, you know, logs of wood. We haven't uh, divested ourselves from human feelings. We may be distressed, if necessary, by various trials. There's a lot of things to distress us. But nevertheless, in spite of this distress, we still greatly rejoice. Because we've got something that transcends the distresses of this life. I don't know anybody, I don't know if anybody in here has any particular reason to think you might receive a lot of money. Do you play any contests or anything where you could get a ton of money? Anybody do that? Anybody buy lottery tickets? <laughs> I do. Okay. So, how how big is the prize sometimes? Um, 2000 well, I get the Windora ones because I don't like to spend a lot of money, but like it's usually like 4000 or 2000 All right. Imagine you got the four thousand dollar one. I assume you've never gotten the four thousand dollar one. I got thirty dollars. Thirty. Okay. Well, that's start. <laughs> All right. So imagine getting the four thousand dollar one. And I guess this. Do you know immediately if you won on this game, or do you have to wait? Gets immediately. I get to scratch off. One okay, you can scratch it off. Yeah. And find out. Okay. So what if you know tomorrow you've got a headache and. You know, your dog's uncooperative, and your best friend, you know, says something mean to you, and, you know, this, that, and the other, and you go in, and you buy the ticket, and you win 4000 How will you feel about that day? Probably happy. Yes. Excited. Because there's something that outweighs those other minor problems in the day. Winning $4,000 would make a lot of things seem not very important to us, right? <laughs> and that's the point. It, you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while of necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. These trials do distress us, but they're not nearly as important and weighty as what causes us to rejoice. <clears throat> and in fact, these trials are like putting the gold to the fire. You put the gold through the fire, it burns away the impurities and makes it purer and more valuable gold. And you put a disciple through different trials and it makes their faith stronger. It makes them purer and more committed to the Lord. So there are some challenges, but we still greatly rejoice and we know 
that the proof that our faith, uh, when it's tested, will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we look forward to that revelation of Jesus Christ. We know what's coming. We're headed for home. And we're excited about that. He said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. I've always liked that expression. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. Think about earthly things that are joyful. Um, Think about uh, a movie that you've seen that you really, really like. And you recommend it to people. You tell them, you've just never seen anything like this movie. This is the greatest movie I've ever seen. I've seen a bunch of them, and this is the one. What's going to happen when your friend goes to that movie? Almost always. Disappointed. They're going to be disappointed. Why? Because you talked it up so much, they were expecting it to be a lot better. Exactly. Oversold it. <clears throat> you know, after you said all that, it could never measure up to that, right? You ever been to a restaurant? And you just thought this has the greatest food, and you told told somebody, you know, and told them they just man, this food is tremendous. They're never going to think it's as good as you did. You know, every earthly joy is easily expressible and often overrated. But we are dealing with our reward, a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. You couldn't possibly express it enough. You could, you can't oversell it. You can't talk it up too much. Um, and so we are obtaining as the outcome uh, of our faith, the salvation of our souls. Now, that's a challenging statement. In uh, This is a, a phrase, a word actually used several times in First Peter, the salvation of our souls. Do you know what soul means in First Peter? Spirit? Nope. Psyche? Nope. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 20. Now, they translate it differently, but it's the same word. Uh, Who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight, literally, souls, were brought safely through the water. They translate this as eight persons, but it's the same word. Eight souls. I think the King James says that. Eight souls were saved by water. So what does that mean when it says eight souls were saved in that ark? Lives? Yeah, lives, people. It wasn't just eight spirits. <laughs> you know, their bodies were with them. <laughs> Very people. And that's going to be consistent throughout First Peter. First Peter one twenty two. you purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Not like you left your body all corrupt, but you got your soul clean. That's not what he means. 2.11, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which weighs the war against the soul. That, that means you. Against your person. Against your real nature and identity. In 4.19, therefore those who also suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what's right. Wouldn't dare let him have my body, but he'll, I've given my soul to him. No, your person. In First Peter, soul means your person. Soul is just one of those past, those terms that's used in various ways in the Bible. Uh, but here, he means person. That's surely what he means when he had the eight souls saved by water. So I think he's just saying the salvation of you. <laughs> um, and, 
the, your 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 whole being. Because when we're saved, it's all of us that saved. It's not just a part of us. Thoughts and comments through verse nine. In verse seven. Um, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor, and that's praise, glory, and honor directed towards God, not us ourselves. Yes, I think so. I probably got a note about that in here somewhere if I can find where it is. Sometimes I can't find where they are. Um, we may be scorned here, but our faith results in praise, glory, and honor through Revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, this is what I've written down. He is pleased to share these qualities with us, God's attributes that he's eager to bestow on those with genuine faith. So I think what I thought is that we are actually receiving praise, glory, and honor uh, because of this tested, genuine faith. From uh, God. Do what? From God. From God, yes. From God. He shares his glory and honor with us as his special people. You really see the specialness coming out here from time to time in this book as, you know, we may be foreigners here, but we're special people to the Lord. And he's, he's, he, he prizes us highly, which is a really amazing thing. Yes? So, you, I think maybe in the past I've read into this, or at least other parts in the Bible, that God causes the trials so that we can be purified. But that's not necessarily the case here, is it? That could be any trial can purify us? I think God's ultimately in charge of trials. And so, I mean, there may be various things that led to the trial, but I think God's using the trials to purify and strengthen and all that. Because I've kind of assumed if it's not a religious trial that I'm not being purified, but I can be purified through health trials, I can be purified through non-spiritual trials. Yes, definitely. Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think there's just a lot of things we go through in this life. Some of them are persecutions and things like that. Some of them are other kinds of things. Like but, the ice cream machine being broken. Uh, yeah, that's, well, that's a trial. Uh, and but, but that strengthens us. You know, whatever... I mean, think about it this way. The better life is here for us, the more we want to leave and go to heaven? Probably not. You know, if you wanted to make a really, really good ball player, if you want to make Caleb a really good cross-country runner, how many days in a row did you run? And you, every day of those days, what was the shortest you ran any of those days? 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Which in 15 minutes you can run how far? That was probably two and a half. Yeah, two and a half miles. So he ran at least, and most days you ran more than that, right? Yeah. A hundred days. Did, did you not even get tired? Yeah. Sore? Hot? You ran all that through the summer pretty much, right? Wow. Why'd you do it? To get faster. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to be a better runner, what are you going to do? Pamper yourself? You eat all the ice cream? And, uh, you know, uh, just don't bother to work out very hard. That's not going to make you better. What makes us stronger as Christians is going through tough things. That's going to build our character. It's going to purify us and make us stronger and better. We know that in everything else. We see when we raise kids. You know, at least I felt this way. I didn't want things to be real easy for my kids. That sounds mean. 
But I didn't mean it meanly. I just felt like they needed to develop some toughness and they needed to develop some maturity. And there were some times when I could have made things easier. You know, I'll do that with Malachi, who's my grandson who's three. He loves to climb. We've been on some play places and things like that. And you're like, help me get up to this next... I'm like, no, I'm not going to help you. You can do it. Every once in a while, if I think he really needs it, I may say, you could hold here or something like that. But most of the time, I don't even do that. He needs the challenge. I mean, if I just tell him how to do it or I help him to do it all the time, he doesn't learn how to do it himself. I'm not trying to be mean to him. I'm just trying to help him develop. God's not trying to be mean to us. He's trying to purify our faith like pure gold. So these trials, they're part of it. And we still rejoice. Because way above the trials, we have the purified faith that we have the home of I'd have about 10 to 12. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he uh, predicted the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. All right, so regarding the salvation, the prophets um, who prophesied about this grace really searched and sought to know what it was all about. Um, and they, you know, it's interesting because that means the prophets wrote things they didn't understand. How did they do that? God, God told them to write it. Yeah, exactly. They wrote by the inspiration of the Spirit. Can you imagine being, uh, this is kind of uh, old-fashioned, but can you imagine being a telegraph operator? You know, and you were passing on dots and dashes of messages from whoever. Do you suppose telegraph operators sometimes didn't understand the messages they were passing on? <laughs> sometimes they were probably even in code or whatever. You don't have to understand to be able to pass it. You know, these these writers, they wrote the truth that God inspired them to write and told them to write. But sometimes they didn't know what they were saying. And they, they actually were wanting to know, when's this for and what's this all about? You know, it was kind of exciting to them. I assume they were hoping that it was going to relate to something they would get to experience. But what was revealed to them about the time uh, period of this? It was going to be in their time. It was going to be in... Our time. Our, your time, Peter said. They, they were writing about the blessings you were going to get, not blessings they were going to get back in that time. Wow, that's really cool. So all the things they wrote about that they were so excited about and wanted to know if they were going to get to join in on actually for, for, were for us. The blessings in Jesus. And he said these are things into which angels long to look. That's amazing that the gospel would be so valuable that it's the focus of attention of prophets and even angels. You know, wow. It's almost like the angels find this so interesting and so exciting and so marvelous that they're trying to peer into it and see what they can see about it too. You know, because this is amazing even for them. What God is doing with these foreigners that belong to heaven. Comments and questions? You ever heard of, like, everybody that believes being raised from the dead? You know, like, like sure. conquering death is an unbelievable thing. 
and not especially popular in the Greek culture of Paul's day, which thought of the body as being a bad thing, and they would long to become pure spirit and leave the body. So for them, it was almost horrifying to think of the body being raised. But actually, God presents this as the culmination of the whole work of salvation. Last enemy to be defeated is death. So it's actually really exciting. Um, you know, I mean, would you expect people here to understand how we see things? You know, I can't expect people in Brazil to understand how I feel as an American and to relate to things that I feel as an American. They don't They don't feel the same way. Uh, this happened to me years ago. It was about 2003 or four. There was a lady who I knew very well. I'd known her for several years and stayed in her and her husband's home frequently and all that. <laughs> she went on this tear one day. She was a nice person. Went on this rant about the U.S. and how terrible the U.S. was. And I realized as she was saying this, she obviously knew where I was from, but she wasn't even thinking about that as she said that. And it was really, wow. It wasn't the way I look at the U.S. <laughs> you know, and she later, two or three days later, she came to me and apologized. It had dawned on her. <laughs> so I didn't see what she really thought about it. Uh, but, you know, I mean, don't be surprised when the people who are worldlings have a really bad opinion of people who are these aliens who belong to this other world, you know, of heaven, you know, it's like we're extraterrestrials to them. You know, we're just way out there, you know, it's just crazy stuff they talk about, and I don't know where they got all that stuff. Well, yeah, I would expect that. You know, I don't expect Brazilians to understand the U.S. You know, I don't expect them to be able to relate to things I feel and see. They don't look at the flag and think, oh, wow. You know, they don't see it that way. You know, they don't take the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag. You know, anything like that doesn't mean a thing to them. I don't expect worldly people, for the things we value as Christians, I don't expect it to mean anything to them. I don't expect them to think, oh, wow, you've got a great hope. I bet you're really happy with that. They think, that's pathetic. You know, they don't get to have any fun here, do they? <laughs> you know, it's a whole different lifestyle. It's a whole different mindset. So First Peter's telling us, we got an awesome hope. We got so much to look forward to that in spite of all the misunderstanding and trials and difficulties we go through here, we greatly rejoice, looking forward to what the prophets wanted to know about and the angels long look into. Thoughts? There's something, though, about it. He mentions, he says, uh, it was revealed to them. Was it revealed to all of them? <laughs> That'd be my first question. I don't know about all of them, but evidently some of so them then, were told that it wasn't about themselves, but about us. And then it says, now these things have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Yes. So the way they heard it, obviously we're hearing it this way. They heard it by those that uh, read it firsthand at that Holy Spirit involved in both cases. Right. Holy Spirit inspired those prophets, and Holy Spirit revealed the gospel. But yeah, you're right. They found out it was for us that have received the gospel. However, that was. I don't know. I don't know 
how God communicated that or if he did with every one of them. I don't know about that. You said that the people of the world don't understand. And I think that's why Jesus commanded us to love one another. Because they understand when they see the hungry being fed. And they understand when we're supporting one another. And they understand um, friendship um, that's different than what they're used to. Sometimes. And that can be an evangelistic tool. Jesus said in John 13, by this all men will know you're my disciples. He's going to talk about that, even in this first chapter. I think there's another purpose, too, in that. Because I can remember when I lived in Brazil. There were Americans in Brazil that I would not have had anything in common with in the U.S. But man, it felt so good to hear, you know, English spoken and somebody who identified with your culture, even though some of them were people that really were quite different from me as Americans. But in Brazil together, we were Americans (laughs) and had a certain bond. You felt that. Well, I think we ought to feel that love bond with our brothers because we're all the, you know, extraterrestrials here on this planet. And, you know, we're not understood by the worldlings, but we sure do appreciate and care about each other in a very intense way. So I see my mode of operation in First Peter is to see almost everything is going right back to us being aliens. And that includes this next section, about 13 to 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So, he says, therefore, and he says to do something, prepare your mind for action. Now that, you may have that translated quite differently. What he's saying is, bind up your the robes of your mind. But, but that doesn't make any sense to us. What, would, what does it mean to you if I say, you need to roll up your shirt sleeves? Get to work. Get to work. Because your shirt sleeves may be kind of in the way. Well, they had these big flowing robes. That's going to get in the way of your work. Gallus it up and get busy. He's saying, do that with your mind. Get your mind ready to act. You need to be ready for some strenuous, concentrated, undistracted thinking. You know, Focus. Is what he's saying. Um, Because what he's going to tell us to do is not easy to do from a mental standpoint. So he said, roll up the shirt sleeves of your mind. Keep sober in spirit. We think of sober as not being intoxicated. But really the idea is just, you know, being serious-minded and not letting yourself uh, be distracted by other things. And then what that was just preliminary. You know, what he specifically says is, Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, once and for all, make up your mind that you're going to fix your hope completely on Jesus' return. 
How easy is it for us to fix our hope completely on Jesus? It can be hard sometimes. Because? You get distracted, you have a moment of doubt, and you're just like, how can I do that? And just, just trusting sometimes is tough. And what's the difficulty in fixing our hope? completely on Jesus. You tend to not want to put all our eggs in one basket. That's true. And? And that we can't put any hope in ourselves. Or in anything here on the earth. You know, he's saying you concentrate all your hopes on heaven. You know, we we get the problem of the divided mind and divided hopes. I'm hoping for that ice cream and going to heaven. I'm hoping for the retirement. I'm going to heaven. And really, we need to purify and have more of a single-minded focus on the hope of Jesus coming back. That's what we're really hoping for. Nothing else really matters. So we don't really care much about anything else. Uh, But we really mentally work to get to think about this so much that we're just 100% zeroed in on the hope we're going to receive. That's what he's telling us to do. That is a challenge. But the more we think of ourselves as aliens and pilgrims, the more we're going to look forward to being with him. Now he also says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. So you need to be obedient. And obedient children, like your your obedience ought to be part of who you really are. Don't be conform to your former lusts. Don't be ruled by the way you used to live. Um, But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So what he ultimately says is, be holy. How holy? Like God is holy. Like God is holy. So holy means? Holy, holy. Holy, holy means? What does holy mean? Set apart. So we need to be constantly uh, as set apart, as committed to God as possible. In fact, he says, to be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. He's going to use behavior several times in First Peter and in Second Peter. Uh, or, or, or sometimes it'll be translated differently with the same same word. So, you know, how easy is it to be totally set apart and devoted to God in, er- in all our behavior? You know, when you think about God, is there anything that describes God better than holy? I can't think of anything. So when we are holy, we are being like God. We are using him as our model. We're committing ourselves totally to him and his will. That's what we need. Holiness, where it doesn't fit in on this planet, when we're from, where we come from, holiness is the style. That's what everybody wears. That's how they live. That's, uh, everything they do is holy. That's, and, but, but you come down here and whoa, the whole lifestyle is different. Now, are you going to cave into the culture here? Are you going to maintain that that spirit and behavior and everything back from the homeland. 
You know, that's a challenge for people. You know, I mean, even like, um, you know, you have the idea of, um, if you move to another country, how much do you hang on to your prior culture? And how much do you just assimilate the new culture? And that's, 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 you know, what do you do about that? Well, you know, from this perspective, as far as God's people are concerned, we need to not assimilate. We need to maintain our native uh, behavior and, uh, you know, what we wear, what we say, what we do. It all needs to be the holy pattern that we, we got from our homeland. That's a challenge. That changes our life. If we were holy in all our behavior, wow. I've got this illustration. I've probably used this before, but I got this in an old commentary on First Peter. I mean, like this thing was written in the 1600s. It's actually still pretty good. And it used this <laughs> illustration that I love. It relates to like back in the Middle Ages or maybe a little before when they, when they lived on the manor. You'd have the serfs that would be kind of the, the servants of the manor. You'd have the Lord of the manor. He'd be the one that was going to be the head guy. Now think if you were the, the son of the Lord of the manor. This is back in Europe, and the manor was probably, the people living there were not very cultured, were not very educated, and all that. Well, let's say that you turn 18 as the son of the Lord of the manor. He sends you off to all the great cultural capitals of Europe. You spend two or three years traveling abroad. You go to Rome and Paris and London and I don't know what was big back then. But you go to all the places where people are really sophisticated. Centers of learning, centers of art and, and music and sciences and whatever. And, and this boy, this young man learns how really important, sophisticated, you know, cultured people live. Well, guess what happens three years later when he comes back to the manor? He doesn't talk like he did when he left the manor. He doesn't dress like he did when he left the manor. He doesn't even do the stuff he did when he left the manor. Now, can you imagine him coming back to the manor? And all these serfs looking at him, laughing. <laughs> Look at what he's wearing. <laughs> Look at that. He went up and went crazy. Wow. Look at how he talks. He doesn't talk like people. You know, let's do this. And just making fun of him, maybe behind his back. Maybe he gets wind of it and he finds out they're making fun of him. Now, is he going to be, like, really uh, embarrassed when he finds out they're making fun of him? Why not? Because he knows what's true culture, I guess. Exactly! They're the ones who don't know anything. You know, they're the ones who've never been anywhere. They've never learned the real way you live if you're important people. And so, sure, they're going to make fun of him, but that's just because they don't know anything. That's exactly where we're at. When we live holy lives, what do worldlings think? <laughs> Look at him. <laughs> Look at what he wears. Look at what I talk. Look at how he behaves. Look at all the stuff he won't do. Where, where did he come from, anyway? This is crazy stuff. And we need to feel, well, they just don't get it. They've never been where we've been. They don't understand the life on the planet we come from. 
which is way better. It's way higher culture. And they just don't get it because they've never experienced that. They're just limited to this earthbound perspective because they've never traveled over there like we have. So we feel sorry for them, not intimidated and embarrassed and trying to, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. uh, That is kind of awkward. No, it's not. It's just awkward for them because we don't fit in, but we know we fit in where it counts. I thought that was a really helpful illustration. Thoughts and comments? So if we make claims that we come from this other country, from heaven, but we act in rude and disrespectful manner towards the people who are making fun of us, then we're just like them. How does that reflect back on God? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. We don't, we shouldn't be shaken in our faith. And we should be open to explain to them why. But we honor all men. He's going to say that in the next chapter. You know, even the ones that are worldlings and are disrespectful, we still treat them respectfully. That's a part of the code of holiness in the country where we come from. Yeah. All right. Well, that's where we're going to stop tonight. So, uh...